You are listening to the Left Right Forward Show with Ambassador Delano Lewis. Enjoy the show. You're listening to Left Right Forward Show, and I'm your host, Ambassador Delano Lewis. I'm excited today because I have a good friend and colleague uh, who is a retired career Foreign Service officer, Ambassador Vicki Huddleston. Vicki, welcome to the program. Thank you. Delighted to be with you, Del. Thank you. Thank you. I was just looking at your background and, and, and thinking all the things you've done as a career Foreign Service officer. I didn't get a sense of the early, early years. Uh, were you a New Mexican or a Coloradan? Or I know you went to <laughs> you bought you went and had a degree from University of Colorado. Your bachelor's. What were the early days? Well, I would say I'm a Westerner. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I my father was an engineer, and we moved around quite a bit. So I was born in California, lived the longest in Montana, but graduated from high school in Page, Arizona. Oh, really? Uh-huh. <laughs> That's Glen Canyon Dam. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so that that was that kind of gave me this wanderlust, <laughs> but I, I but I I was more interested in uh in going overseas and and uh seeing the world than uh, just staying in the United States. So I I joined the Peace Corps. And I went to Peru, and then I stayed in Peru. Well, I came back for orientation, and then I was sent back uh, to Peru by the American Institute for Free Labor Development, which Mm -hmm. was a USAID contractor. And I worked for them both in uh, Peru and Brazil. And then I came back to Washington. I had gotten married to a Foreign Service officer in Brazil. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went to the School for Advanced International Studies, which produces a lot of career Foreign Service officers. And that's and a Johns Hopkins? After, yeah. Right. Pardon? That, that, uh, was that your MA at Johns Hopkins? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I joined the Foreign Service. And you made a career of that uh, all over the world. I, I did, but mostly Africa. I, I was really thought I was a Latin America uh, person, but when I married my husband, <laughs> who was with aid, he he was in most of the aid pro- countries or in Africa. Uh-huh. I became an Africanist, and actually, the the majority of my career was spent in Africa. Uh, my, uh, my, the part of my career in the Foreign Service that wasn't Africa was basically Haiti and, uh, desk officer from Mexico. Wow. I, I, I noticed all those places. So how many languages do you speak? <laughs> I, I speak badly French <laughs> and, uh, and Spanish. <laughs> well, I know better than that. <laughs> so uh, and, and English, of course. So, um, what was the first uh, Foreign Service post? My first Foreign Service post was Sierra Leone. Oh, really? And actually, my daughter was born there, which was not exactly a great idea on my part to go off to uh, Sierra Leone and, and uh, give birth. But <laughs> we both survived. <laughs> And uh, for for that and other reasons, I have a 
uh, a deep uh, regard and love for Sierra Leone. Well, that's incredible. I I knew you when we first met. Uh, uh, you were on your way to Cuba, uh, and I was mm-hmm. heading to South Africa, and we were in the ambassadorial class. And doing my research, yep. I did not know that you were a Peace Corps volunteer. Uh, we hadn't talked about that. I was Peace Corps staff in Nigeria and Uganda. And as a matter of wow. fact, we thought our first post was going to be Sierra Leone. <laughs> but oh it, it, ended up, it ended up being uh, Benin City, Nigeria. Uh, and wow. we were there from 66 to 67. And then Uganda. That must have been really fascinating. Oh, it was. The Civil War erupted, and uh-huh. uh, that was the sad part. We had to evacuate our volunteers. And then I was transferred and, and was a country director in Uganda from 67 to 69. So when were you in Peru? Before, before I answer that, you know, <laughs> the Peace Corps is really uh, given a lot of credit for organizing assistance, humanitarian assistance to Biafra, so you must have been part of that. That's very true. Yes, I was. Wow, um, well done. Well, thank you. I was going to be the regional director uh, for the East because I was in the Midwest and associate director. So I, Gail and the kids, we had uh, three at that time, three little boys, and they couldn't go with me, so they came back to the States, and I went over the Anitra Bridge and uh, you know, with one little suitcase to meet the Peace Corps staff across the bridge. And I was going wow. to be there if things settled down to be the new regional director. And the war got uh, heavier and heavier, and we ended up evacuating uh, volunteers out of the east and also coming uh, and evacuating volunteers out of the Midwest. So uh, wow. Biafra was beginning at the time uh, we were evacuating, when Ajuku called all of the people back and all of the Igbos back and so forth back into the east uh, and then became Biafra. So it was a very interesting time, a little bit scary. We didn't lose any volunteers, and we managed to have a, a very safe evacuation. But I was in two evacuations over the summer of '67. Well, you know, um, Nigeria was one of the first countries to have a civil war after independence. True. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that was one of the worst civil wars because uh, so many died in, in Biafra. But I, I, it's so interesting because, you know, for so long Africa uh, sought its independence, and then finally getting independence, it had all these religious and ethnic rivalries and uh uh, Nigeria was, you know, just just kind of blew up. Yes, it, it, it was very complicated. Uh, you're absolutely right. There were the tribal uh, uh, rivalries and animosities, and there were the economics of uh, of the oil being there, and um, there were religious uh, difficulties. I mean, it, it, it had it all there uh, in terms of issues and the struggle. Um, and it was yeah. very sad because... Uh, uh, the Biafrans, um, you know, just had a tremendous amount of talent. Uh, the Ebos were very hardworking, industrial, pe- industrious people. Anyway, it was it was very complicated and sad because yeah, it lasted yeah, well, six or seven in, years. You had in the north the less westernized, the less well-educated, uh, uh, mainly Muslim Fulani population. That's right. And then you had the more uh, better educated, more contact with the west of the people along the coast who tended to be Christian. So right. you, you had it all. You had sure the did. 
religious and ethnic and, and cultural. Absolutely, absolutely. And it was very sad because it went on for, I'm sure, seven or eight years, and I'm sure many, you know, after the mm. peace was settled uh, and the federal government controlled and Biafra uh, was no longer, but uh, I'm sure it took a long time for that to, to settle down. And what other parts of Africa were you involved in? Wow, okay. <laughs> I've been so much involved in Africa because so Sierra Leone first, mm -hmm. and then Mali, and I was in Mali twice, once as an economic officer during the drought, 83 to 86, and then as ambassador uh, from uh, 2002 to 2005, which is when the uh, jihadist terrorist insurgency began. They were Algerian. Uh, they were Algerians who had, come, who had lost the civil war, the, you know, the Islamic army. And mm -hmm. they came into uh, Mali uh, with 15 German hostages, and they received a $5 million payment from Germany. And that was kind of the real beginning, very small, um, the terrorist movement in, in, in Mali, which, of course, now extends all across the Sahara. Wow. And then uh, 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 after Mali the second time, let's see this. Well, after after Mali the first time, then I uh, went to Haiti and probably something in between. But then I was ambassador in Madagascar, and uh, uh, then I went to Cuba and then back to uh, and then back to Mali. But I also was the deputy assistant secretary for state and then for defense for Africa. So I, I I have had a lot to do with Africa over the years. You certainly have. And I visited you when you were Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Africa. We, I, paid I remember. <laughs> I, I think you came with your son, right? That's right. Good memory. Yes, my son Jeff. And, uh, we're still <laughs> yeah. involved in some business efforts together today, but that's a very good memory. So tell me uh, about um, Cuba, because I want to uh, I, I spend a little time. I want our listeners to hear about uh, Cuba. Um, we're talking to Ambassador Vicki Huddleston, who's had a, a very esteemed career as a foreign service officer. And she's just written a book called Our Woman in Havana, a diplomat's chronicle of America's long struggle with Castro's Cuba. And I must say, it's fantastic. I just finished it, and uh, I would recommend it. So first of all, tell our listeners uh, where you can they can get the book. Oh, on Amazon is, <laughs> is the easiest. And uh, if you're local, if you want it in hard copy, well, Amazon will send it to you that way, too. Good. But, you know, you can also go down to your library or, or local bookstore. But, you know, Amazon's so big, it's the e easiest, easiest way. way to do everything, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you. I will start with a question. Um, I remember, and I'm sure you do, that the ambassadorial course we took in 1999 as we were heading out to our post, it was co-chaired, co I guess you'd say, by a career ambassador and by a political appointee. And I was a political appointee, among others, and you obviously were a career ambassador. And I remember that they said to, uh, that they advised us to develop a mission for our country that we were going to serve. Uh, for you to spend some time thinking about a mission that you would, what would be your mission for your country? And so I gave that a lot of uh, 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 discussion of, and thought about that for South Africa. So my first question to you, 
what was uh, your mission? Uh, what were you wanted to achieve uh, when you became chief of the U.S. interest section in Havana? Oh, okay, probably two things. Uh-huh. Uh, one, ironically enough, because I was I was earlier deputy and then director of Cuban affairs, so that was a four-year period that's in Washington. And then six years, seven years later, I went to Havana as the head of our diplomatic mission. And I've never thought that the embargo was an effective way to deal with, with Cuba. In fact, I've always thought that actually the embargo probably helped keep the Castros in power. Mm-hmm. So I kind of wanted to see what I could do to soften the impact of the embargo, particularly since when I went, it was President Clinton, and although in his first term President Clinton had courted the Cuban-Americans by signing on to the Cuba Democracy Bill, which enhanced the embargo, uh, by that time he was trying to open up to Cuba. And one of the main things he did was um, the people-to-people visits mm-hmm. and that exchanges as well. But people-to-people allowed Americans to go down to Cuba and visit if they were not just tourists but were visiting schools and clinics and things, and, and uh, Cuban officials, things like that. So I was really looking forward to enhancing that opening toward Cuba. And the second thing that I was interested in was to try to pry open a little bit how close Cuba society is. Mm-hmm. Because the Cuban government at that time, and it's much better now, uh, really limited everything. There were no international newspapers. There was little or no access to uh, computers, cell phones, all this was greatly restricted. And so I ended up uh, uh, passing out little AM, FM shortwave radios uh, that made Fidel Castro so mad, he uh, <laughs> said he was going to kick me out of the country. <laughs> right. I, that was a real interesting part of your book, uh, the, the radios that you that you were passing out all over the country. Go ahead. Well, it was fascinating because It was actually uh, George Bush, President George Bush, had uh, uh, defeated Al Gore, and we can go back to that because one of the main reasons he lost was, as you remember, it was a disputed election, Mm -hmm. and the Supreme Court decided along partisan lines, and Gore uh, lost, and (laughs) and Bush won. But the reason... That Florida was so close was because of the case of little Elian Gonzalez. Right. And he was this little boy found floating in the Florida Straits on Thanksgiving Day. But to go to the radios, <laughs> I had, uh, I had, uh, so right, uh, right after the whole Elian Gonzalez saga, uh, and uh, Al Gore's loss of the presidency, George Bush became president, and then the Cuban-Americans were really sure that he was going to tighten the embargo and clamp down on Castro. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, in fact, nominated a very conservative Cuban-American, all right, to be assistant secretary. But he was opposed 
both uh, by both Republicans and Democrats uh, in in the in the Senate, and so we had this kind of period in which there wasn't there was only an acting assistant secretary, and so the Clinton policies didn't change, and that uh, meant we still had a lot of people coming down, in fact, more people than ever, to include businessmen like Rockefeller, senators, all sorts of senators, congressmen, uh, and then, you know, just uh, average Americans coming down. Right. And Castro really loved this. And so he didn't really want to do anything that would set off the Bush administration. And so I was, and my staff, it was definitely a team effort, (laughs) we began to work as hard as we could with human rights activists, visit with them, uh, encourage them, uh, work with them through providing uh, link-ups with uh, video to talk to people in the United States and uh, hand out lots of books. And eventually we we decided we would hand out I think I'm to blame for that. Uh, <laughs> these AMFM shortwave radios. Well, people loved, loved them. It. <laughs> oh, they. You know, it was it was access to information. They didn't just uh, listen to local stations. They could get uh, they could get missionary stations. They could get BBC. They could get Voice of America. <laughs> they could even get uh, Miami. Wow. And. <laughs> Fidel claimed they were all tuned to Radio Marti, which mm-hmm. he hated, which was, you know, the Miami-based uh, uh, U.S. government-supported uh, radio station that broadcasts into Cuba information about Cuba and interviews with human rights activists. Unfortunately, it's become very politicized, and it is now not an impartial radio station. But in any case... Uh, you could get any of these stations, and Fidel hated it. I I always remember, I think one of my best stories about the radios in the book was when we were handing them out, I had a trunk full of boxes of radios, mm-hmm. and we had gone, uh, my uh, um, Ryan Dooley had come down as a temporary political officer, and we'd gone uh, to an older part of Havana trying to locate where the former residence of the ambassador had been located. And when we came out, we saw these kids. And as he's getting out this box of radios, we look around, and here come uh, the uh, police, uh, or the interior ministry that is always watching me. And they were always driving in a little white Lada so we could spot them. Right. And I yelled at Ryan, get in the car, get in the car. <laughs> but before he did that, he took this box and he dropped it on this in the middle of the street, and it was full of radios. Radios. Well, uh, when after maybe a couple of years later, after I'd finished my tour in Havana, a young lady in uh, San Diego, California, came up to me and she said, "You know, my father." who was in the interior ministry, in other, in other words, this, these are the people who, you know, keep tabs on dissidents and right. people like myself. <laughs> uh, he had one of your radios. <laughs> yeah, it just shows, you know, how people really wanted that information and how it really gave them 
access to the outside because at that time, television and radio sets had limited frequencies. Right. And so actually most people just had the local news. I, I want to go back to to let our listeners know I don't think they may not know about uh, the whole background here, particularly Cuban-Americans and their uh, their impact in the U.S. Of the Ilian Gonzalez case that you talk about a lot about in the book, about the little boy that was floating on the, uh, the Straits of Florida and rescued and, and was in the U.S., and the Cuban-Americans in Florida wanted to keep him uh, in the U.S., and he had relatives there. And you and others, uh, it, it, uh, President Clinton and and uh, the, the Attorney General Janet Reno, wanted to return him to his father in, in Cuba. But it was a big part of your book. But explain this whole business with Cuban-Americans and their impact in Florida. I think that would be important well, for our listeners. Yeah, this is a, a really good case of how a domestic lobby can impact control American foreign policy, and Cuban-Americans have controlled American foreign policy since uh, the Kennedy years, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, So many came over, of course, in the early 60s, and we then had the uh, failed Bay of Pigs invasion, and then Cuba turned to the Soviet Union uh, as a guarantor of its security, and we had the missile crisis, Mm -hmm. and Cuban-Americans, after the Bay of Pigs, began only voting for Republicans because they felt that Kennedy had betrayed them by not sending in an American invasion force to back up the exile invasion force that the CIA had, had organized. Wow. So the first, you know, the first part begins with the Bay of Pigs leads on to our confrontation with the Soviets that almost led to a nuclear holocaust. And then, you know, this this uh, relationship kind of gets stuck. Uh, <laughs> the United States uh, has already put on embargoes. It enhances the embargo. It, I, it attempts to completely isolate to isolate uh, Cuba. And this is what the Cuban-Americans wanted. And Cuban-Americans, through the Cuban-American National Foundation, that was led by this really amazing Cuban-American, Jorge Mascanosa, really controlled Miami as well. In those days, say in the 70s and 80s, people in Miami didn't oppose uh, the Cuban-American National Foundation stance on Cuba, because if they did, uh, they could find their business harmed or themselves as well. That's so, amazing. And that, group, uh, when, and that group was really anti-Castro, without a doubt. Really, well, so many, you know, it's when Castro took over, he really turned Cuban society upside down. Mm-hmm. And that only happened in a couple of countries. China is a uh, an example of that too, but he all probably sixty to seventy percent of the elite, of the professional classes, of the educators, of the businessmen, of the landowners, they they fled Cuba. Right. So you have this huge exile group in Miami and in Florida. So they're all concentrated in one area. 
to have every reason to hate this government that has taken their homes and businesses. And in some cases, uh, the uh, Castro government did uh, kill a number of people, presumably those most associated with the dictator, Batista, who was pretty ruthless and also was very much associated with Meyer Linsky and the American Mafia. But But anyway, they... They they have this one, first of all, this greater group of Cuban-Americans that came right after the revolution that have, ne- on the whole, have never given up their hope of returning and their hatred, not just of Castro, but of the Cuban government. Mm. And they, it, it seems as if they're never going to succeed. It's been 60 years. But it also seems as if the revenge on Cuba seems to be worth it. But wow. it's ironic to me because I think if they had followed a different policy, in fact, Castro, without an embargo, you know, information tr- into Cuba, and people might have changed things as it did in Eastern Europe. In any case, this, this lobby, which is so powerful with Republicans, convinced every Republican administration to uh, to have the embargo. But it also did so with Democratic administrations as well, uh, to include Clinton in his first term, uh, who, was, who had courted uh, the Cuban-American community. But to get to Elian Gonzalez, what happened with Elian, and it was, you know, in the last year of the Clinton administration, just, you know, as he was really, as his opening was gaining momentum, uh, uh, this kid, who was really cute, uh, <laughs> about five, who was five years old, uh, his mother tied him to an inner tube before she drowned, and he was found floating mm. in the bay by some other, by some Cuban Americans on their yacht, taken. Uh, they called the Coast Guard, taken to a hospital there, and at first it seemed as if his relatives, which was an uncle, a great uncle of his father, uh, would return him. But the Cuban American National Foundation got involved, and it turned into this horrendous battle uh, between. Fidel Castro was sort of like his last hurrah, because about four or five years later he left power mm-hmm. for, because of illness, and the Cuban Americans, and kind of their last hurrah too, when they really could be said to represent the majority of the Cuban Americans. And in the end, uh, Janet Reno and Bill Clinton decided to do what international law demands, and that is return the child to uh, the surviving parent. And and we interviewed uh, Juan Miguel, his father, two times to ensure that his, he was a good father. And, and Clinton did perhaps something he regretted. He decided that rather than just making that decision and sending him back right then, well, and Janet Reno had given seven several orders to send it back, but the family wouldn't give him up. Uh, it, it, he said he had let the courts decide. And so it went from family court to federal court and eventually 
had to be decided in the Supreme Court, which turned down the case and let the federal court ruling stand. So for six months, the Cuban-Americans demonstrated in Miami. Uh, Janet Reno went many times to Cuba. Elian's grandmothers came to see him. Right. Eventually his father came, bringing Elian's uh, classmates from his school. I mean, it was a huge show. And it, in Havana as well, Castro organized huge marches. He called them million-man marches down uh, Malacol, which is the huge beach road along which the American intersection, which is now the embassy, stands. Right. And right past uh, my building and I and some of my staff would stand out in, on the balcony and watch them go by. It was an amazing show uh, of this ferocious hatred uh, between these two Cuban-Americans and, and, uh, and, Cuba, and the Cuban government and its supporters. It was really amazing. And, and it finally and when ended. when Elian came back, he sat right below the uh, intersection, Dow Embassy, uh, with Castro and the entire Politburo mm. of, the, uh, of the Cuban government and the Communist Party. And I was standing on the balcony, and if I had a, a stone, I could have thrown it <laughs> and maybe hit Castro if I had good aim. <laughs> but, it was but quite Janet, a show. But Janet Reno really had to uh, take uh, inter- intervene and actually just get him and take him out. Because, uh, oh. explain that. Oh, remember that that photograph? Mm-hmm. This uh, 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 INS uh, trooper, they have a special force, uh, fully armored, goggles, helmet, uh, flak jacket, long rifle, <laughs> wow. is opening the closet door, and there's little Ellen in the arms of the fisherman. Or the, the that had found him, <laughs> and of course he's Elliot is at crying and upset, and this this uh, uh, special forces guy looks stunned, and that it was sort of the photograph that went around the world. Uh, fortunately, a day later there was another photograph, and that was Elliot in the arms of his father, because his father was in Washington D.C. Uh, waiting for him. And for the Supreme Court decision, well, and that, and of course it was the right place for Elian. But uh, many Cuban Americans, even Cuban Americans who are very moderate, still resent uh, the fact that uh, Elian was sent back to Cuba. Yes, because they really viewed that as a victory for for Castro, which they were definitely against. Just to shift for a bit to a little lighter side, uh, you had some really tough issues. Um, I'm going to talk about Guantanamo base for a second, but I want to get to the lighter side of with your your Afghan hound Havana. Uh, you cover that in the book. This is a beautiful dog that you named Havana, who was uh, a show dog and won lots of awards. But uh, explain what happened uh, with you and Castro in relationship to the dog Havana. <laughs> Well, you know, it, it always seems like Castro and I kind of had this competition going. <laughs> and uh, it, it, the dog 
was kind of an example of it. The dog, Havana, the Afghan hound, was a Cuban dog. And uh, she was a beautiful dog. Beautiful and dog. she did rid- these ribbons. And then one day I got this letter from the president of the Afghan club that said I had been given a dishonorable discharge because of my country's policies toward Cuba and my personal actions in support of the uh, what they call cockroaches, <laughs> oh. the human rights activists. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I, I sent this letter uh, to the Washington Post that had this column in the loop. Right. And they put in the loop this story about how the diplomats in Havana were in the doghouse with Castro. <laughs> and this story truly dealt, it caught on all over the world. I People sent me clippings from their little hometown papers all over uh, the United States. And then uh, the television, uh, Univision carried it in Latin America. <laughs> And uh, and we were on uh, NPR. It was you know like the uh, big story. You were and discharged Fidel from was, the you were discharged from the Association of uh, Competitive Dog uh, Shows. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, and we'd say it gives us pause. Right. <laughs> you, know, you know, we just I was we I was really being uh, evil, but it gave me an opportunity to you know to explain what our lives were like, that, mm-hmm. you know, I lived in this beautiful residence, and I was surrounded by other beautiful homes, but the only people in those beautiful homes were people who were listening to my phone, <laughs> <laughs> or or they were guest house for uh, 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 visitors who were generally from other countries. The old Brazilian residence down the way that had been restored was where President Hugo Chavez used to say. Right. Anyway, so I could point out, you know, the control the Castro government exercises over over its people. And I, I, I liked having this opportunity to do this and also to show that somebody would stand up to Castro. So, so Castro decided that he had to get out of this. <laughs> and there was a, a, a military delegation. They were ex-generals, you know, former generals. And we had a Coast Guard a person on my staff to work for the Cuban Coast Guard. And they went to see Castro. And the first thing he said to them, I'm going to give her husband's dog a pardon. <laughs> the husband's dog, not your dog. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't going to give me that credit. <laughs> so he pardoned Havana. <laughs> he pardoned Havana. <laughs> and then they said... And then they made an announcement that I had slandered them yes. because they had thrown me out of the club, not the dog. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh that was awesome. incredible. I, I thought that was a very light moment of the book, but uh, just shifting to one of the dark sides of the of your challenges, and that was Guantanamo Base, uh, which is uh, I didn't I. I learned a lot that due to a treaty of 1934, the U.S. has control, and they pay a very small amount for gun, gun, use of Guantanamo, uh, and it's our uh, and and you know I guess the regulation says the treaty says both parties will have to decide whether or not to to uh, let this uh, or change this agreement. So uh, right. 
uh, and it ended up being a place for um, these uh, uh, what enemy combatants uh, were, were were imprisoned there in Guantanamo Base. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, explain a little bit about your, the whole business with Guantanamo Base. I mean, that, it's incredible things yeah, that you it, had to deal so with. Yeah, it's fascinating. The Treaty of 1934 kind of uh, established a relationship and uh, with the United States and Cuba when we uh, no longer occupied it and we abrogated the Platt Amendment, that, the Platt Amendment that we took care of their foreign affairs and things like that, and also incorporated the Guantanamo Agreement that was initially signed uh, uh, by Roosevelt's Secretary of State in 1903, and by the terms of that, because you remember, it was the United States that sent troops to Santiago de Cuba, uh, one group of which was led by uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, uh, Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, Mm -hmm. who was the hero of the Battle of San Juan Hill, and who, of course, later became president. So... uh, in return for helping the Cubans win the war with Spain, we said we'd like to have Guantanamo Base. Mm-hmm. And the base is very interesting because it's shaped like a figure eight uh, with this very small uh, bit of water uh, between two large bodies of water. Mm-hmm. And we have the large bay that opens to the ocean, and the Cubans still have the bay behind it. And I'll never forget the first time I went. It was probably uh, 1989, 1990 to Cuba. And, and I was standing there at the base, and this uh, Soviet uh, vessel, a merchant, goes chugging right through the <laughs> waters of our base, which was legal, mm-hmm. and then through the straits into Cuban territory. And, of course, this... this uh, Vessels flying, the hammer and the sickle. <laughs> wow. Anyway, so Guantanamo has had this crazy history. Initially, it was like uh, very, very tense. And, you know, we had these guard posts and Cubans uh, uh, laid mines, the largest minefields in the world for a time. Mm. We had mines on our side. We pulled them up. And then uh, after the Soviet Union, crumpled and died in 1991, 92, uh, we began to change uh, the way in which uh, we operated the base. And it was also because we used the base uh, in 1993, 94 for both Cuban and Haitian refugees. Mm -hmm. So the base became not so much a military base. We didn't need it for any military purposes anymore. So it became sort of a law enforcement base. Right. And um, that opened the opportunity to improve relations with Cuba. And so we actually had fence line talks between our two militaries, the commander of the base and the commander of eastern Cuba, the general. And Mm -hmm. they would have regular talks. And we built a big hospital eventually because we had a lot of elderly Cubans on the base because they used to work there and didn't go back to Cuba uh, after the missile crisis. So they worked until they retired. So we had this geriatric hospital, and we began to cooperate with uh, the Cuban medical services in Guantanamo City, which is part of Cuba. So here we are with this strange situation 
the base cannot be given a uh, return to Cuba or a status change until both countries, Parts. as you said, mm-hmm. agree. And uh, we give, uh, we write the Cuban government a check for $2,000 every year, which is nothing. Right. But Fidel Castro never cashed them, and I don't think Rawl has either, mm. since they were a pittance. And um, the relationship b- between our militaries uh, became better and better and better. We actually had a very good relationship. It was a model relationship. <laughs> uh, wow. Foreign Minister Felipe Roque said, oh, this is a model for a relationship. Of course, that drove the Cuban-Americans crazy. But what happened was I was called, and I was told by the State Department, look, we're going to put the unlawful combatants there from Afghanistan. And I said, fine, but let me tell uh, Alarcon, Ricardo Alarcon, who was like the number four in charge of, uh, in the government, and he was in charge of North American issues, let me tell him. And so they grudgingly said, okay, I went and I told Alarcon, along with actually my political officer, who later became the head of the interest of the embassy and became the charge, not the, because we still don't have an ambassador. Anyway, we told Alarcon. Alarcon didn't say yes or no, but we could sort of tell he, he, he was going to address Fidel with the issue and recommend that Cuba not say anything. And so uh, the unlawful combatants arrived. The press all gathers around Castro, and they say, okay, what about that? The Americans just sent all these prisoners into, uh, into Guantanamo. And Castro, much to their surprise, says, oh, well, the Americans will do what the Americans will do right. on the base. And they were astonished. Wow. <laughs> wow. And the Cuban-Americans, however, led by Ileana Ross-Lentina and uh, Lincoln Diaz-Balart and the Cuban-Americans uh, who are in uh, the U.S. Congress, were sure we had done some kind of deal. deal right. And Colin Powell, the Secretary of State, then was trying to reassure them, had to go out and testify, no, no, we haven't done any deal with Cubans. <laughs> but the Cubans were just, you know, the Cubans have been interested, you know, at least since Clinton, in, you know, having a normal relationship. Well, that that is incredible. I, um, I I was very fascinated by all of that in your book about Guantanamo Base, and I think that you said that that certainly uh, it continued, but you didn't think uh, we would be about the business of torture, which uh, uh, came out later in, in terms of what we were doing uh, with these enemy combatants. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a complex history because uh, that that was very much where some of the interrogation took place uh, the first uh, the first times it was in Guantanamo and eventually then it went to Abu Ghraib. Right, right. Well, we're talking to Ambassador Vicki Huddleston, who's just written a book about uh, Havana, Cuba, and, and U.S.-Cuban relations. And uh, we were just talking about a number of issues uh, during her time there. I want to, you've been generous with your time. We have a few minutes left. I want to just sort of move um, 
to let our, our, our listeners know about career ambassadors and political appointments because um, I know I was a political appointee, and usually those are persons who work for a political party, give money party, or both. And career uh, 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 ambassadors are those who are career foreign service officers. And two-thirds of, um, of uh, our ambassadors are, are career and about one-third are political. But you worked uh, with a number of administrations as a career person. And my hat is off to you uh, as to many career ambassadors who have to deal with various administrations. And you've seen the ups and downs as it relates to Cuba. So I want you to talk a little bit about um, Clinton. You talked a little bit about Clinton uh, and his opening up a bit with Cuba. But then there was Obama that opened up quite a bit. And then where, were, where are we today? Well, you know, I the first thing I have to say is, you know, I was so impressed with our ambassador, uh, Masha Yovanovitch, yes. and Bill Taylor, and, and Kent. and I mean, they just were so fine, and yes. they just represented what's the very best in the Foreign Service, and mm-hmm. they all had served under numerous presidents. Right. As for myself, I, I've served up to Seven presidents. Wow. I started with uh, Gerald Ford, actually. That's when I came into the State Department. Probably. And I ended with Obama at the Department of Defense. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it shouldn't matter whether the administration is Republican or whether it's Democrat. You know, you carry out the policies. And you also always have a chance to uh, indicate to your superior, which isn't generally the president, but, you know, may be the deputy assistant secretary, the assistant secretary, mm-hmm. that, look, you know, is this the best policy? Should we be really be doing this? And then there's a process, you know, of which policy is made. It goes to the, after the State Department decides on their policy, then it goes to the National Security Council, where Department of Defense, Department of Treasury, Commerce, all the foreign affairs uh, uh, agencies meet to discuss the policy, and then that moves up, and all sides are laid out then to the president, and then he can make a uh, uh, hopefully wise decision. Mm-hmm. And and the thing that's worrisome now is that process doesn't really exist anymore. Right. Uh, because uh, John Bolton uh, began to take that policy uh, process apart, and so generally, the, these major issues now are decided in the White House, and I would say without the benefit of all these agencies being able to put forth uh, their views and their 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 opinions, and uh, that's that's very serious uh, because. Uh, that means that our foreign policy can get off track, like right. the case of Ukraine, where there, where there's two tracks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's the there's the track that the the government uh, 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 bureaucrats, so to speak, are following, and then there might be another track that's being uh, followed at the very top of the government that has uh, very little to do with the regular foreign foreign policy that is designed uh, for for the benefit of our, our country. Now, we talked about Cuba, and it's true. 
foreign policy is influenced by domestic policy. Mm-hmm. But hopefully we try to keep uh, partisan politics from influencing our, our foreign policy. So this this whole... This whole issue right now is very interesting, and I think, I hope it gives the American public an idea of what foreign service officers and national security officers like Fiona Hill and um, uh, 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 Colonel Lieutenant Colonel uh, Van Dam is that Vinneman? Uh, I think Vinneman. There mm-hmm. we go. Vinneman. Mm-hmm. Thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, that you know. What they're doing is serving their country, not not any uh, political uh, party. And when we have political ambassadors such as yourself, and you have to be a really amazing one, extremely good. Thank you. It's first, best of all, if they're good, like you, <laughs> and have foreign affairs experience, uh, but not all of them do, not in Democratic or Republican administrations. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them are just big donors with who want the title. And that was true. I mean, unfortunately, it's true in, in both administrations, and I think doesn't uh, serve the country well. I have no problem with political appointees as long as they have experience like you, but when they're just there for the name, it's it's not it's not good for our foreign policy, as I think we have recently seen. I think you said you summed that up quite right. And as we've recently seen in Ukraine with Gordon, uh, Gordon Sondland, uh, who it appears uh, uh, did not have much experience and became ambassador to the European Union. Uh, and his testimony, I think, was quite revealing. So that's a whole whole other story. But re- it raises the question, get back to State Department, about Secretary of State and the role of the Secretary of State. Uh, we haven't heard from Secretary Pompeo on this Ukraine matter. And the Secretary of State is very important in terms of foreign policy, protecting uh, the ambassadors or uh, the the staff and uh, those folks that are spending time on these issues. Uh, we've not heard from him, and I understand morale is pretty low at State as as a result. Well, since since the first Secretary of State <laughs> Tillerson, yes, and uh, who really began to dismantle the State Department. And now uh, Pompeo, who, uh, who I think the Foreign Service were really hopeful about, and he has unfortunately turned out to be a boss that doesn't protect his people. And, you know, whether you're Secretary of State or the head of a business, you have to protect your people. Yes. And so the Foreign Service is, is going through a very bad time. But on the other hand, I think... When you have people like Ivanovich and Taylor and Kent, that uh, uh, you, you can see that they're really good people there, and, and we can be very proud of that. Well, I think that speaks well. Uh, listen, you've been very, very generous. I've enjoyed every minute of this. Uh, just Me to, too. Just to, <laughs> just to wind, wind down, um, I wondered, do you have any advice to... Uh, listeners, uh, particularly maybe there are some listeners who are thinking about a career in foreign service because you've had an extraordinary career uh, in Africa and certainly uh, uh, your time in Cuba, I think, has just been, and I recommend the book highly, Our Woman in Havana. Please uh, get your copy. But if you have any advice to anyone who might aspire to be a, uh, a foreign service officer, what advice would you give? Do it. <laughs> I mean, it was a wonderful career, and I think you can't beat uh, government, government service, 
particularly for me, who is always interested in overseas, being overseas, uh, uh, for, uh, the Foreign Service, I mean, or the National Security uh, Agencies, it's just, it's so challenging. It's mm-hmm. so interesting. I mean, you're dealing with different cultures, you're uh, providing assistance that makes a difference in people's lives. You're involved in encouraging presidents and leaders uh, to do the right thing, uh, uh, to pursue democratic outcomes. Uh, it's it's really uh, uh, an immensely fulfilling career, and the way to get there is usually that you need a master's degree. Mm-hmm. It It's very good if you go to the Peace Corps or right. if you don't go to the Peace Corps to work overseas for an NGO or just work overseas so that you have some overseas background and then you take the written test. And mm-hmm. uh, it used to be there's less uh, people applying right now that, you know, only about 10% pass the written test. But mm-hmm. take it again. Right. Uh, I failed it the first time. <laughs> <laughs> and so I went to the Peace Corps. It worked out very well. <laughs> oh, that is fantastic. Well, speaking so, of that, I, I have to give a plug for the Lewis family. Um, I, we have a grand, Gail and I have, a, uh, we have 11 grandchildren, but we have, and we're proud of all of them, but we have one granddaughter who's a Peace Corps volunteer in Indonesia. And she's, wow, uh, she's wonderful. been there about a year. Uh, close to a year, so I hope we'll get a chance to visit her before she leaves. But oh uh, yeah, what a, it's such a beautiful country. <laughs> Where, what is she working on? She's a teacher, and she had been. She has her master's, and she had been uh, on, in Florida, and had been pr- uh, moving toward uh, teaching in school, and and uh, just wanted to take this experience. Uh, she's an educator. And she ended up um, now in a, in a very rural part of Indonesia, uh, and she was selected by, uh, after her in-country training, uh, but with uh, three or four other volunteers to go to this very rural part. Uh, and they took, uh, and so she was sort of one of the leaders that are doing this teaching of teachers uh, in this rural part of Indonesia. So we're very proud. Oh, wow. <laughs> Oh, well, you have to go, you know. That's right. Beautiful country and uh, runes, you know, they have these uh, Hindu runes and uh, uh, Islamic runes. Yes. And, you know, it's really amazing. The only problem with Indonesia has uh, a terrible environmental record now uh, because of burning palm trees or well, burning yes. down the forest to so they can plant uh, palm oil trees. But mm. Wow. Uh, you have to go. Well, we, it's we still beautiful. Absolutely. And we're thinking about it. But thanks again. Uh, I just uh, enjoyed your book so <laughs> much. I enjoyed your, your, you know, you stayed within the bounds of uh, being a good foreign service officer, but you also had your own mission of how you thought things should go in Cuba. And I was very impressed with uh, you following through on that and beginning to open things oh, up. And okay. I, thank I was very you. Impressed. That's high praise coming <laughs> from you, Ambassador. Oh, thank you. But it's been really great, and thanks for participating. It's been, oh, it's been I, fun. I've enjoyed every minute of it. Oh. Thank you, Dale. You're welcome. Take care. You're, thank you uh, very much. Happy holidays. Same to you. We've been listening. Uh, you've been listening to Left, Right, Forward, 
Uh, this is uh, Ambassador Delano Lewis, and we just had the great pleasure of talking with Vicki Huddleston, uh, who's a, a ret uh, retired career foreign service officer who'd spent time in a number of posts in Africa, but was also uh, spent time in Cuba, and she headed our uh, interest section, U.S. interest section in Cuba, and I recommend her book, Our Woman in Havana. So it was very educational today. I learned a lot, and I hope you did as well. So next time, Godspeed. You have been listening to the Left Right Forward Show, where our mission is to inspire, educate, and inform. Thanks for listening.